The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. All the members of Congress who stiffed the committee they cannot stiff the Justice Department. And so there's a, you know, there's a series of these where the committee kind of runs out of steam because the Justice Department won't enforce its contempt citations or because it's, as Molly says, on a ticking clock and so it has to prioritize. The Justice Department doesn't have any of these problems and it has more powerful tools. And so, you know, that doesn't mean they're going to indict but it does mean that when they have something to say, they will not be limited by the record as the committee establishes it by any means. I'm Natalie Orpet, Executive Editor of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, December 21st, 2022. On Monday afternoon, the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the United States Capitol, better known as the January 6th Committee, held its final public event. It summarized its key findings and voted to approve its final report. And, as most commentators are focusing on, the committee also voted to recommend to the Department of Justice that it charge Donald Trump and others with crimes. Shortly after the event concluded, the committee released the executive summary of its final report. On Tuesday morning, we at Lawfare held a live event over Zoom and YouTube to talk through it all. I was joined by senior editors Quinta Jurassic, Roger Parloff, Molly Reynolds, and Alan Rosenstein, as well as Editor-in-Chief Benjamin Wittes. Today, we're bringing you audio from that event. It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 21st, 2022. The beginning of the end of the January 6th Committee. So we are here today to talk about yesterday's meeting, not hearing, because our congressional expert Molly Reynolds has corrected me many times. Um, of the January 6th committee, um, which was its last public event that we know of and in which they talked about the report that has not been released yesterday, though we were initially expecting it. Um, instead, yesterday, the committee released the executive summary of its report and had a, what was a relatively short meeting compared to previous public events that they've had to talk through some of their findings and importantly, to announce what referrals they were making, both criminal referrals to the Department of Justice and some referrals of members of Congress to the House Ethics Committee. Um, So we're going to talk about all of that. um, But I wanted to start first by asking everyone for your thoughts on the public event yesterday and what your impressions coming out of that were. Um, so Molly, I'm curious in particular for yours um, and what your thoughts are on sort of how this all fits into the broader political context. So I think maybe to start, it's helpful to recognize that like they needed to have some sort of public meeting in order to vote on these referrals and to have a vote to release the report. So that the reason we call this a business meeting is because that is the transacting of business um, by a congressional committee. And so they needed to do something. Um, they could have just, you know, come together, sat in a room for 15 minutes for as long as it took to make motions um, and have votes. That's not what they did. They did that at the end of the session. But they spent the first um, part of the session really recapping what they had done over the course of the summer in um, summer 2021, and then a series mostly this summer, and then one in October as well, to sort of provide a kind of 
visual audio version of the major findings that are summarized in the document that then was released yesterday afternoon. Um, they are calling it the introductory material to the final report. I think we'll talk quite a lot about what's in this document, what it tells us about what we might expect in a subsequent document, um, what we might expect in terms of additional materials that the committee expected to release. But this basically, to me, felt like kind of the natural progression of the sessions that the committee had had earlier this year. It's very highly produced. There was a lot of video. Um, all of the, the members of the committee spoke and they spoke in turn and it felt very, um, it felt very choreographed, um, all that sort of thing. So in that sense, it was really sort of a continuation of what we saw and also just a culmination and a, a choice about what to do with the time that they needed to have in order to formally transact the business that they did. Great. And Quinta, what stuck out to you about yesterday's meeting? I think, you know, Molly said that's kind of, you know, wrapping everything up. I don't think there was a huge amount of new information there. I think if I'm, I'm remembering correctly, I think the only brand new material we had about the information about January 6th was uh, interviews with Hope Hicks, who had previously been a really close aide to President Trump. Um, I don't believe she was interviewed by the time that the committee held its previous hearings over the summer. And if you, you look at the executive summary, the dates for the interviews that are cited with her are from October. So they were able to show new footage of interviews with her, um, include that information, really just, you know, drawing a line under everything else that we'd already known that people in the White House were begging Trump to step in to stop the violence on January 6th and that he refused. To me, that was notable. I think it it was striking to me that there was so little new information in that uh, business meeting. I was about to say hearing. Sorry, Molly. Um, and that suggests to me that, you know, we've been wondering, is there going to be new information in the report? Is it mostly going to be a sort of a more detailed version of information that we've already seen from the really, I think, gripping hearings that we saw over the summer? This suggests to me that it's probably more in the latter category. I mean, we don't know. But I would have I would guess that if there was anything, you know, really new and explosive that they probably would have led with that and they didn't. We should also talk about the criminal referrals because they've really been making a, a big deal out of that. And that was kind of the other major event um, that happened during the business meeting. Um, but just on the question of, you know, substantive information, it seems like we've probably seen, you know, the, the broad strokes of what the committee has to offer already. OK. And Alan, how about you? What stuck out to you? Yeah, I, I mean, as Quinta just mentioned, to me, the, the big thing was the criminal referral, um, which I think is notable for a number of reasons. First, obviously, it's unprecedented for there to be a criminal referral of a former president. Um, and though obviously the referral is not legally binding, it doesn't obligate the Department of Justice to do anything. It certainly is something that I suspect special counsel Jack Smith and the attorney general will take into account. And it is still of immense symbolic significance, especially given that it was unanimous. It's also notable that they did not I was going to say just, but all of these crimes are, are serious. Um, in addition to the crimes of uh, fraud and conspiracy to obstruct Congress and conspiracy to make false statements, the committee pulled out the big gun. I mean, they referred Trump for prosecution for insurrection, which, to be honest, is basically as close as you get to treason without calling it treason. And uh, I think, again, that is that is notable in part because it it is not just about the uh, actions Trump took with respect to the electors or pressuring Mike Pence, it is squarely about the actions he took to whip up and send the mob to the Capitol, which of course includes as a centerpiece the January 6th speech, and thus raises some interesting First Amendment uh, questions that we can talk about later if we want. Great, thanks. And Roger, what stuck out to you from your viewing in France? Well, I, I agree with Quinta and Alan, and I, I think those were the things that stuck out the most. Uh, a small, uh, a minor point is that there was a little extra information about the obstruction of Congress, of the, a sort of conventional obstruction of Congress, uh, that, that apparent, uh, the, the uh, tampering of, with witnesses before this committee. 
Um, and it seems to be, uh, they didn't identify the witness, of course, but it did seem to be Cassidy Hutchinson again, where it was previously reported that it was Cassidy Hutchinson. It was a female witness. And uh, there was a little more evidence about what happened there. And there was even more in the executive summary that came out afterwards. And it's really pretty alarming uh, descriptions of uh, the lawyer apparently telling her that uh, it was okay not to to pretend not to recall things that there was no way they would know if she just said I don't recall and and then in the report there was still more there were the uh, lawyer refused to tell her who was funding uh, her defense and uh, additional details uh, in the report uh, about uh, leaking it to other people against her will, to other lawyers, to the press even, and uh, really very alarming stuff. And and it did say, uh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but apparently the referrals did allude to also investigation of, obstru- of these sorts of obstructions of uh, the, the committee's work under... Uh, 18 U.S.C. 1505 as well as 1512, and and said that they had all, the committee had already shared information with the Department of Justice and with the Fulton County District Attorney. Yeah, and I do want to come back to to that the criminal referrals and the I I think of them as quasi referrals. The committee mentioned several other potential criminal statutes in the executive summary, um, but did not specifically recommend referrals of those. Um, Before we move to the text of the report itself, Ben, what were your thoughts based on uh, the public event yesterday? Yeah, I think you all are a bunch of softies. I thought it it was a bit of a mess and it was not very well thought through. It's a weird mix of new stuff that is genuinely interesting. Um, The uh, referrals that Roger refers to, as well as the referrals of members to the House Ethics Committee, which I'm sure we'll talk about, referrals that are, from my point of view, very little more than press releases of matters the Justice Department is already investigating to the Justice Department in a fashion that could not be calculated to be less influential. And then the release of an executive summary of a document that you don't release the document yet so that nobody can figure out uh, how much new information there is in, in the actual release. And then a presentation that is kind of like their hearings, except it's really the, the sort of book report of here's what we did for our homework teacher with a little bit of hope Hicks thrown in. And I thought the aggregate uh, for a group of people who've been uh, over the course of eight hearings, I thought with one exception, really superb. And, you know, on one of these events, I complained about one of the hearings, but basically I think the hearings have been spectacular. I was a little bit gobsmacked by how uninteresting and badly messaged this business meeting was, down to the point that we keep referring to it as a hearing, not to irritate Molly, but because it came off more as a hearing. And by the way, right at the end, there's a business meeting. It's a, This is actually a business meeting. So let's take a vote on releasing this thing and sending these criminal referrals. We keep referring to it as a hearing because it actually sounded like a hearing. Uh, so I thought it was pretty bad, uh, honestly, and I uh, am surprised because I expected to be much more positive about it than that. Yeah, so so two two points. One is that this is not the first time that the committee has fashioned what might otherwise be a hearing as a quote-unquote business meeting. Um, on uh, October 13th, they held a, a quote-unquote hearing that was actually a business meeting uh, because that allowed them to vote um, in public in front of everyone unanimously to subpoena Trump. And I actually think that moment was really powerful. So I might disagree with you a bit there. I will say, um, I think I commented this to Molly and Natalie yesterday as we were reading through the document, um, the committee kind of bill-barred themselves. And what what I mean by that is that uh, if 
if listeners remember, uh, in advance of the Mueller report, Bill Barr released what he then disputed was a, a summary, but was basically a summary of the Mueller report that happened to be highly misleading, that was out in the public eye for a couple of days before the report itself was released. And that really succeeded in, I think, distorting the conversation around it, really making people misunderstand what was going on in the report, because as you say, Ben, nobody could actually look at the document. Here, they're kind of doing that to themselves. They're obviously not trying to misrepresent their own work, or I assume that they're not. Um, but there is a, it seems like there's a kind of similar strategy. Now, if I were trying to make the case for that, I might say, well, they're trying to, you know, have a slow media rollout to make sure that it gets maximum coverage in a, a busy week in advance of uh, the the Christmas and New Year's holiday. So that might be their thinking. But I agree. I found it somewhat odd. So I have I have one thing to add, which is that I think that to the um, some of these dynamics that um, folks are discussing really reflect something that we've talked a lot about in our coverage and analysis of this committee's work, which is that the committee has basically from day one been running out of time. So it has been true that uh, you know Quinta and I have talked a, talked a, a great deal um, about kind of where were the hearings, why did they take so long to get started? One of our arguments in in that work was you know they only have so much time um and i think that um i think that those concerns likely were very acute as we reached into december you know if you look at the document that was released yesterday for example like there are typographical errors that sort of thing so um it really does whether sort of you want to go as far as ben does to be disappointed with what the kind of format and and what was done yesterday i do think it's um it does reflect and it's a good reminder of the fact that they've always He's been on a very tight clock, a very short leash in that sense. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think also the distinction with the Mueller report, of course, is that the committee has been making its case um, and has not done the sort of more lawyerly prosecutorial approach of documenting everything, citing everything meticulously, because the presentation it's been making to the public, which is a big part of its role in establishing and trying to create some sort of accountability, which is its purpose, was through public hearings and um, other public events. So as I think several folks have mentioned, a lot of this was not new to those of us who have followed very closely. Um, But there are, I think, inevitably going to be some interesting differences in how the information looks on paper and with citations. Um, in addition to what's new, sort of how how things differ from a public presentation that's full of rhetoric and witnesses and voices and media presentations, multimedia presentations, and how it looks on paper. So let's let's shift now to the report itself, um, which I'm sorry, I should say the executive summary itself, um, which is about 100 pages of text with about 50 pages of footnotes. So Ben, actually, I'll, I'll come to you first because we just published this morning a piece from you arguing that what's the most interesting thing about the executive summary is actually that 50 pages of footnotes. So can you just t- tell everyone why you think that is? Yeah, don't skip the footnotes, people. This is uh, this is where the real action is. Look, the body of the material that they released as text yesterday is stuff they've already released. Um, there's occasional... Uh, new bits of information, the referrals with the caveat that I gave before are, in my opinion, I know Alan disagrees with me, relatively uninteresting. The story is a story we learned over the summer with a few hopixie and obstruction exceptions. And so everything people are talking about, about this with, a again, with a few minor exceptions, is stuff that kind of either doesn't matter very much or that we already know. What is new here is the footnotes. There's 1,200 interview transcripts, uh, and they are now citing them and releasing them over the course of this week. This is an immense investigative body of work. And I focused on, just for illustrative purposes, a single footnote, footnote 50, uh, which uh, supports, I was really excited to see it there because I, 
read this sentence. I don't have the sentence in front of me, but it says something like, uh, Trump made a series of statements to senior White House staff and others that uh, showed that he understood that he had lost the election, which struck me as a bit of a holy shit sentence because I had been aware that he had said in front of Cassidy Hutchinson to Mark Meadows, I can't be seen to have lost or, you know, this is too embarrassing. I can't have lost. But I didn't realize that there were a series of these. So I went and looked at the, you know, at footnote 50 and it cites a transcript to Mark Milley, to Cassidy Hutchinson, to Alyssa Farah Griffin, and to within the last month, Kellyanne Conway, who has spends five pages of transcript on the subject. And so I think, you know, this is, uh, as these documents come out, this is going to be the principal, I think, uh, legacy of this committee is going to be having basically done, think of everything that Bob Woodward did during Watergate on the record, transcribed and released to the public. And, you know, their opinions about it, their construction of the facts, which is what we learned over the summer, is certainly valuable uh, and I think had a very significant political impact. But this is actually the investigation. And so I I think I, like the part of this executive summary that really excited me in a super nerdy kind of way is the 54 pages of footnotes at the end. Yeah, I have to say, as someone who used to conduct investigations, I found the footnotes fascinating as well and was delighted that I was not the only one. Um, Alan, was there anything that you wanted to to say in response? I think, well, Ben can correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, I, I imagine Ben is less interested in the referrals because they're not legally binding. And of course, after months and months and months of building a one-sided case against Donald Trump, right, you know, outside the um, the gauntlet that is the criminal process. I mean, who cares what the committee thinks? Yes, that that about sums it up. Good, good. And I mean, Ben Ben's right. And ultimately, it's not the, for the committee to decide. It's for Jack Smith and the Attorney General and the Department of Justice to decide. Um, but I think this the symbolic nature matters. Um, and I think beyond that, one, I think it does give some cover, right? Though, of course, I don't think DOJ would ever say that explicitly. Um, but it does give some cover to a DOJ decision to indict. And also, you know, the committee has a bunch of smart lawyers working for it as well who have been enmeshed in this evidence for months and months and months. So, you know, I, I don't think that they would take this step just as a matter of politics. You know, I, I think that, that all the members of the, of the committee have a good faith belief that, that in fact Trump did not just commit, you know, grave offenses, um, but actual chargeable and provable criminal offenses. Yeah, okay. So I do, I want to come back to the the criminal referrals and some of the ways in which the executive summary built some of its case for what those uh, referrals were based on. But the report itself, we are told, and the executive summary seems to confirm this, is going to be divided into several different sections with different thematic focuses. And so in the executive summary, there is a statement of each different theme that I believe tracks exactly the um, themes of each of the public hearings that the committee undertook. Uh, So I want to start with um, a bit out of order, Um, but there is one section in which the executive summary uh, talks about the failures of law enforcement and what that looked like, and what its findings were. And I know, Quinta, you found that section to be particularly surprising, and I will, again, uh, pitch our written content um, because we just published a piece this morning by Quinta as well on this topic. Um, but I'd love to have you tell people about it here as well. Yeah, this this section of the report kind of made my my head explode, honestly. So what, what the report does is it says the intelligence community and law enforcement agencies, this is in kind of the summary area, did successfully detect the planning for potential violence on January 6th. And then it goes on a little further. 
I was struck by that because a lot of what I've written about in relation to the sixth and what Ben has also written about um, has to do with the failure of law enforcement and intelligence agencies, particularly uh, the intelligence components of FBI and the Department of Homeland Security to anticipate what was going to happen on the sixth when it was eminently predictable to anyone with an internet connection who could look at what people were saying on Twitter, you know, Parler, Gab, etc. So I thought this phrasing was a bit odd. Now, granted, you could say, well, you know, perhaps they, they detected it. They just didn't do anything. And I think that's, uh, uh, to paraphrase Justice Kagan uh, from an oral argument a few weeks ago, that's slicing the bologna a little thinly, but I suppose you could make that case. The point that really struck me, though, is that that kind of sunny framing of what uh, FBI, DHS, Capitol Police were were able to do continues and gets stronger throughout the summary in a, in a way that I think at a certain point moved for me from sort of a generous framing to outright distortion. Um, it's sort of presenting law enforcement, presenting intelligence agencies as having, you know, known and prepared for January 6th and that, you know, the only thing that they couldn't prepare for was Donald Trump, essentially. That's more or less... Um, I'm paraphrasing, but there, there's a section that essentially makes that argument in the report. That's just not true. Um, there is a lot of reporting, some of it from Congress, from the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee and the Rules Committee. There's a uh, report uh, commissioned by Nancy Pelosi by General Rush Russell Honore about um, law enforcement failures at the Capitol in the run-up to the report. There was a, a report by the DHS Office of Inspector General, all of which show that, you know, there were people in these agencies who were conscious of and, and aware of and trying to raise the alarm about what would happen, but that that information was not adequately distributed within or between agencies and that the leadership of those agencies were really caught with their pants down. So it's certainly true that, you know, the FBI uh, didn't anticipate that Trump would get out there on the ellipse and call for people to, to storm the Capitol. But you know, FBI Director Christopher Wray didn't anticipate anything else that was going to happen on that day either. And I think that uh, I've been talking for a while, so I'll leave this to other folks on the panel because I know they have thoughts. There's been some reporting about why this might be that kind of points the finger at Liz Cheney. I was a little skeptical of that reporting. I thought, you know, there's, as we've talked about, there's a limited time, there's a time crunch, maybe staffers have sour grapes that some of their stuff is being left on the cutting room floor. But this is really, I mean, it's egregious and genuinely disappointing given how well the committee has done in every other respect of its work. I, I came away you know, really with my jaw on the floor. I hope that the full report somehow mitigates this, but I'm not optimistic. The way I was thinking about this, having read the same reporting that Quinta just summarized about the degree to which there was conflict initially at the staff level and then um, ultimately at the member level among uh, folks involved in the production of this report um, about how much it should address the um, failures of a minimum intelligence sharing and um, action on that intelligence, if not also uh, intelligence gathering. My expectation was that that material was simply just not going to be really addressed in the report, that it was going to be omitted. What Quinta has described, uh, and I think if you sort of, if you start reading the report and you get to um, the kind of first reference to this in the list of findings, there's a way to read that language that says, okay, like they, we can acknowledge that people knew about this and the failure wasn't doing anything about it. And then as you keep reading, um, as Quinta has described, it really just describes a set of facts in a like pretty inaccurate way. And so that, um, and I think that, you know, this is potentially related to this specific piece with um, Vice Chair Cheney and, and her particular um, goals for this process. But I think it is an illustration of a larger point about at least this version of the document, this introductory material, which is that fundamentally, like, yes, it is a report on a body of investigative work, but it's also a political document. And like, I don't say that to mean it's a partisan document. I mean that it is reflective of a set of political goals by 
the folks who contributed to both the investigation and the production um, of the report. So this goes beyond the, just this piece about law enforcement, but just overall, the framing of really the entire series of hearings building to this document and their, their like nearly singular focus on Trump. It's sort of very Trump focused. Um, it also includes things like they choose to include at the end of this um, introductory material, a list of the witnesses who appeared in the hearings. And they format that list of witnesses to illustrate the number of them that were Republicans. There is a section in this introductory material about the circumstances that generated the select committee, where there is um, there is a discussion of the fact that they, there was an attempt to create an independent commission that was filibustered by Republicans in the Senate, um, that the proposal um, to create the independent commission was bipartisan, but the House was bipartisan, and then um, it failed on a, a filibuster in the Senate. It talks about how uh, the initial set of members who um, uh, minority leader Kevin McCarthy put forth to be on the select committee were vetoed by um, Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi because of sort of who they were. So there are a lot of choices about what is in this document that I think reflect, again, this sort of where it sits in, in the broader political context. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent 
potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code Lawfare 20. I read the, that portion of the report as, as Molly says, it's a political document, and this really had a compromise quality, almost a schizophrenia. The, but what you could see was that, you know, it was Stephanie Murphy's part of this report was to write, uh, to focus on the call to the crowd to come on January 6th, uh, Trump's calling of, of the people on. And in the course of that, she obviously became very impressed that there were a, an abundance of red flags, that there was plenty of evidence that violence was coming. And she, she does insist on putting in there that fact that yes, the warning flags were there. And, uh, Liz Cheney did not remove those. What what she did was sort of a uh, sleight of hand. Uh, she said uh, what was not shared was in order to keep the focus on Trump. You're, you're about to ask, well, yeah, what happened? What about the the chief of of the Capitol Police? What what was going on here? And instead of asking that, the questions what was not shared was uh, and was not fully understood by intelligence and law enforcement entities is what role President Trump would play on January 6th in exacerbating the violence and later refusing for multiple hours to instruct his his supporters to stand down and leave the Capitol. So they, they try to put the focus back on him, the fact that he kept secret, the fact that he was going to march to the Capitol and and... Just as you're about to say, what about all this? They changed the subject. I mean, I, I did notice what both of you are saying, and it, it's very, it's very striking. I have been, as has Quinta, concerned about the magnitude of the FBI's intelligence failure, uh, in the run up to January 6th, uh, since, you know, January 7th. And I've been very struck by the degree to which absolutely nobody wants to talk about it. And traditionally, Republicans don't want to talk about it because they don't want to talk about January 6th at all. And Democrats don't want to talk about it because it shifts the focus from Donald Trump. And if you talk about the degree to which the FBI had essentially no insight into what was coming, which is a a, a raging intelligence failure um, that reduces the, you know, one villain thesis. And I think part of what happened here is that some group on the committee, whether it's, I, I, I kind of don't believe it's just Liz Cheney because she doesn't, she only has one vote. And so, you know, if, if it were just her, 
as some of the reporting suggests. Uh, I'm not really sure how she could hijack the whole committee, but some some group of them that certainly includes her really, really did not want to uh, do anything. In fact, there's a sentence somewhere in there that the the whole thing has one cause and it's Donald Trump. I forget the exact language of it. And they really, really wanted to hammer that point. And she really wanted to hammer that point. And the problem with it is that, you know, I hate to accuse Liz Cheney of Trump derangement syndrome, but the problem is that as bad as Donald Trump is and as worthy of impeachment and I believe criminal indictment he is for this, he isn't the only cause of this. And, uh, there were some other things going on, uh, including, uh, some institutional pathologies at the two, two and a half agencies that are most responsible for having eyes on this sort of thing while it's brewing. And so I, I do think, first of all, I commend Quinta's piece to everybody who wants chapter and verse on this. But but secondly, I do think the committee's work product is likely to be much more valuable on stuff that was going on in the White House and stuff that was going on in the Justice Department and stuff that was going on in the nasty groups than it is going to be useful with respect to what was going on inside the FBI, inside you know my favorite intel- domestic intelligence component, DHS, INA, uh, and possibly inside the Secret Service. Yeah, I think those are great points. And I'll just add um, one other thing that stuck out to me about that section is that, and sorry, by that section, I mean the part uh, focusing on Trump's luring of people to the Capitol and all of the different red flags that were available before January 6th um, that somehow were not, as Roger mentioned, tied in with the alternative point in uh, the section that Quinta has focused on suggesting that law enforcement failures were really not so bad. And that was that that section cites mostly to criminal prosecutions of rioters in terms of its recitation of facts and discussion of what those red flags were, which suggests to me that the decision to um, have this sort of schizophrenic presentation of the issues may have also been not just a rhetorical decision in terms of what to write and what to leave on the cutting room floor, but may have also been a reflection of the nature of the investigation. Um, And that if the committee is relying more on the work of the Department of Justice to have identified these red flags in advance, maybe they didn't dedicate the, the degree of resources, or maybe they couldn't have, to looking for the types of law enforcement failures that um, seem to have to further investigate the types of law enforcement failures that have been identified elsewhere and the even the committee itself had referenced in the past. So I'm curious, Alan and Roger in particular, since I know you've both done a lot of thinking about how all of this intersects with criminal prosecutions and the criminal process. What did you make of that fact, the fact that the the committee relies on all of these materials out of a separate branch of government? They do rely on it a lot. And uh, my main reaction was, and I, I think it's, you know, it's overwhelming when you, when you, I've, I've sort of focused on these criminal cases and it's overwhelming the number of these people. I mean, in one way or another, all of, almost all of them say either in, in their social media writings before January 6th or afterwards, or certainly by the time of sentencing, they say, I'm, I'm answering Trump's call. So, you know, it is overwhelming. It's a part of this case. The thing that concerns me is when it comes to a criminal prosecution, can you really present that evidence? How does that work exactly? It's it sort of clunky. It's all hearsay. You bring in all of these people and these these uh, sort of criminal defendants and try to get them to say, yeah, uh, Trump, Trump called me in. And then what if you do that? Does the defense get to call in people in the crowd who who didn't riot and say, 
oh, I heard Trump and I, I didn't get that message. I, I'm not sure if it's admissible. I, I don't know how that works. It's extremely powerful. And if you've spent any time with these cases, it's just overwhelming. And here you have 900 people being prosecuted and not the guy that everyone knows is responsible. It's that, that part of it is over, overwhelming in terms of just wanting to bring accountability where it belongs. But when it comes to a courtroom, can you get this stuff in? I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah. And just to add on to what Roger is saying, I mean, if we're talking about the committee looking to the judicial branch, I think it's also just notable how much they leaned on the findings of uh, Judge David Carter, who uh, in in litigation over whether John Eastman uh, had to turn over documents under the you know, attorney-client privilege, found that uh, it was you know more likely than not or plausible that both Eastman and Trump had committed crimes and therefore under the crime fraud exception, the documents could be turned over. Now that, that's fine, right? That, that's, that's good as far as it goes. But of course, the decision of a judge in this context does not map neatly to a, you know, criminal case in which you have evidence and a jury and a bunch of other collateral issues. So, you know, all of this is just, is to say, I, you know, I think it's totally fine for the committee to rely on these actions by the judicial branch, but none of this should be viewed as conclusive or even particularly precedential in any follow-on uh, case for Trump, partially, again, because of the evidentiary issues and partially because some of the important legal issues, like the First Amendment issue, have just not been fully litigated. I just want to add one thing on the criminal side, which is there is at least one enormous thing that the Justice Department certainly has access to that the committee does not. Uh, which the committee alludes to briefly, but doesn't make enough of. It's uh, Pat Shipalone's testimony as to his conversations with Donald Trump. And uh, those he uh, withheld uh, as part of his consensual uh, uh, appearance. He uh, refused to divulge material that would be executive privilege protected uh, the executive privilege does not sustain a grand jury subpoena in D.C. Circuit law. And so he has been in front of the DC, uh, of the grand jury. He has had to ask, answer the questions that he would not answer to the committee. And if you think about that, that goes directly to the question of what Trump was advised was lawful, how he responded to things being advised that things he was contemplating were unlawful. Uh, and so I think the Justice Department actually probably has other things that fall into that category, but it certainly, uh, it certainly has one very major witness, also Pat Philbin, Cipollone's deputy. Uh, and, uh, you know, there are others uh, as well. And so I, th I think you know, don't assume that this is the end of the story here. There's a lot of information that the Justice Department is sitting on that the committee cannot access. Yeah, and I think another wild card is, is Mark Meadows. Also, all the members of Congress who stiffed the committee, they cannot stiff the Justice Department. And so there's a, you know, there's a series of these where the committee kind of runs out of steam because the Justice Department won't enforce its contempt citations or because it's, as Molly says, on a ticking clock and so it has to prioritize. The Justice Department doesn't have any of these problems and it has more powerful tools. And so, you know, that doesn't mean they're going to indict, but it does mean that when they have something to say, they will not be limited by the record as the committee establishes it by any means. Yeah, I think that's an important point. And it's it's one that we've been making for a long time that I feel elsewhere is more commonly stated now, which is that, as we mentioned up top, the fact that this committee is referring these crimes doesn't mean anything in terms of DOJ's decision to actually move forward and indict. Um, so all of this is sort of data points um, and unclear for all of the reasons that Roger described, how much is really available for prosecutorial purposes. Um, but I want to actually take it back just a step um, because Molly and Quinta, uh, the three of us have been talking a lot 
since the committee's creation about the difference between what Congress as an institution is able to do versus what the Department of Justice can do. And I think, you know, for me, a little bit having thought about that component for a while, um, there's there's going to be, I think, entirely fairly a lot of attention now on the criminal referrals and, okay, what comes next? Um, But I want to take a second to just reflect on what we know thus far from the executive summary about what the committee itself will have accomplished in terms of using its own institutional might to find some degree of accountability that is, by its nature, separate from a criminal prosecution. So Molly, do you want to start? I'm curious for your thoughts on that. Sure. So I was talking before about thinking of this document in the broader political context. I think this is another dimension of that, that like we should think of the work of the committee, or I think of the work of the committee as fundamentally trying to uh, provide political accountability for what happened on the 6th. Um, I wish deeply that it had done more, and maybe maybe we will yet learn this, but that it had done more work um, on questions around um, determining who failed when, how, and why to um, prepare for something like this. One thing we have yet uh, that we will see when the um, final product is uh, released that is not discussed in the introductory material is um, the committee's legislative recommendations. Um, so we know we know that one of those um, has to do with reforms to the Electoral Count Act, which are um, slated to um, pass as part of the large measure of funding the government for the rest of the fiscal year this week. So um, that is, we can check that box off, um, but we'll see what other um, recommendations they make. But I mean, in terms of kind of thinking about the the scope um, of, so Ben, you know, talked about this a little bit before, but in simply the footnotes to the introductory material, there are references to 70 named um, individuals interviewed. A couple of those were, there are references to different interviews that they gave. There are references to 35 separate productions of documents from a range of entities. And that's just in this introductory material. So if we think that what is cited in the report is a at all rough barometer for what we will get in terms of a release of investigative material. I think we really just will learn, uh, we'll have access to much more information than we certainly would have if this committee had not done its work and had not committed from the start to making large amounts of the investigative material that it gathered public. So when I think about sort of this committee's work in relation to say the grand jury that we were just talking about, like, yes, there are, um, there are tools that the justice department has via that grand jury and otherwise that a congressional committee does not have, but a congressional committee also does have um, much more sort of latitude to just say, here's what we got. Here's what we're going to show to the public. Um, So I've from the beginning thought of this committee and it's work as the place where we're most likely to learn the most things about what happened on January 6th. And um, are there things that it looks like we won't ultimately learn from its work that I wish we did? Yes. Um, But I also think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that what it will release will represent by far the broadest and deepest body of information that we will have about what happened. Yeah, I agree with with all of that. I think the the thing that I well, two two things to emphasize. One is that as Molly said, the committee has been really uh definitive about planning on releasing maybe not all, but a significant portion of the sort of primary source documents, transcripts of interviews and and so on. Um and so I do think that that is going to be um, in the same way as Ben is talking about with the the endnotes on the summary, that is going to be a, a lengthy and important resource going forward, and that it is a real service that they'll be uh, releasing that. I also think that you know when we talk about the criminal referral, I think it's important that I mean it's it's important to understand that you know a referral is basically a, a strongly worded letter it doesn't as we said it doesn't force DOJ to to do anything but the fact of having made the referral even as it doesn't force DOJ's hand is itself significant 
Um, and I'm, I'm drawing here on uh, work by Josh Chaffetz, who studies Congress at Georgetown, who calls this congressional overspeech. So a riff on oversight that, you know, there's a communicative portion to oversight that involves in sort of explaining things to the public. And there is a significance in being able to say, this is the first time that a congressional committee has submitted a criminal referral against a former president for insurrection. Um, and so that in itself is, I think, hugely significant. And we should understand the significance of that, even as we understand that DOJ's approach might not change because it, it is the the value of the action is the fact that the committee decided to take it. If I could just uh, make my final remarks on uh, the insurrection charge uh, and, of course, the insurrection referral. And, uh, of course, Ben's right. And, uh, you know, it, it doesn't have any necessarily any impact. But there's something very interesting about it, which is that, you know, everyone's been shy of making that charge because they've been afraid of the First Amendment issues of trying to prove incitement of insurrection. And they do an interesting thing. They don't really focus so much on incitement. They don't focus so much on the speech itself as they do on assisting and uh, aiding and giving aid and comfort after the riot has started. I think that's an interesting move. And uh, I, I hope the DOJ takes it seriously. They really focus on a tweet at 2.24 p.m., after the riot is unquestionably underway, if you remember the timeline, he, Trump finds out there's a riot at 1.25. At 2.13, they actually have breached the building. At 2.24, he issues this very inflammatory breach about Pence, saying Mike Pence didn't have the courage to do what he should have done to protect our country and our Constitution. He does this after everyone's been begging him already to start calling his people off, and he does the opposite. Two, two witnesses say he poured gasoline on the fire. One says he decided to resign that day as soon as he saw the tweet. This is assisting, this is aiding and abetting a, a riot and an insurrection that's underway. It's, it's no longer, it, I don't think it presents the same First Amendment questions. I really hope they'll look at it, the DOJ, especially because their favorite charge corruptly obstructing an official proceeding has a lot of issues with the courts about whether you can use it in this way and what exactly does corruptly mean. And you have a conservative Supreme Court that is going to be judging all these things in the end. So I, I think it's an important, it's important the way they phrased it. It's clever. Yeah. And I do want to, Ben, I'll, I'll let you jump in in a second, but I do just want to commend everyone to Roger's pieces analyzing that statute, which is 1512C2. Um, Roger has been focused on this since I think the very beginning of the criminal prosecutions. It's a hugely important statute and um, he has become, I think, the world's leading expert on it. So I'd really recommend um, reading his work on lawfare. Ben, over to you for some closing thoughts. Look, you know, Quinta has been critical of the committee today. I have been critical of the committee today. I don't want to leave it on that note because the magnitude of the committee's accomplishment is pretty hard to overstate. They took a, a matter that was incredibly divisive and remains incredibly divisive uh, for all the reports that they yell at each other in private and you know, that Liz Cheney doesn't get along with the staff. They have done everything unanimously. They have broken enormous amounts of new ground in terms of the material they have brought to the table. You know, so in the history of modern congressional dysfunction, this uh, committee is going to stand as one of the great counterexamples. And, you know, everything else is a a rounding error against that success. And, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're taking small points off for, for this or small points off for that. But it's important to remember that this is actually at a time that we have, you know, real doubts about the functioning of 
critical parts of American democracy. This is actually Congress working and at a very high level and against rather difficult circumstances. And so, you know, I, you know, I started by saying yesterday was pretty disappointing. Uh, and I stand by that, but I, I do also want to say, you know, the committee has been around for sort of a year and a half. And if you had told me a year and a half ago that it would be able to get done the list of things that it's gotten done, I would have uh, not believed that. So, you know, kudos to them all. All right. I think that's a great note to end on. Um, so we will, of course, continue tracking this very closely. Um, I believe the latest news reports are that the rest of the report itself, which is uh, said to be about 800 pages, I believe, um, will be released on Wednesday. Um, there will also be some accompanying materials that talk more about some of the other investigative work that the committee has done that did not, we are told, uh, come out as much in the hearings. Uh, so that will be more new information, presumably. And we will, of course, be tracking what DOJ does in response and all of the other threads that are coming out of this. So keep an eye on our site and keep an eye on social media um, for what is up next. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfareblog.com. The podcast is edited by Jen Patia Howell, and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.